Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, December 29th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. How is it that humans figured out how to read? New cosmological findings that may finally solve the Hubble tension. And more monoliths continue to pop up. A look at two of the more interesting ones from this past week. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. We often point to the usage of tools as not uniquely human, but certainly a sign of more advanced intelligence among animals. But something that is even more uniquely human is reading. That is, the written word or picture used to communicate. Though, as academic Gnome de Barbarian pointed out in a Twitter thread about how we define and redefine concepts earlier this year, quote, Words are tools. We use them for jobs. We forget in our technological age that language is a technology, a tool. End quote. So how did we develop these tools and evolve to use them? That is obviously a much bigger question than a 15-minute podcast can answer, but researcher Lydia Wilson dug into the history and neuroscience behind the question in a recent column on Nautilus, and I wanted to share some of her more intriguing insights. So first, she points out that while some human societies felt the need for more precise communication and documentation, many were perfectly satisfied with oral tradition and pictures, like cave art, to pass down laws, norms, ceremonies, and customs through the generations, pretty much up until colonizers invaded. The earliest records we've found of writing, that is using symbols with intent to communicate as opposed to just more broad pictures, is from 3000 BCE in Mesopotamia. The finding was of clay tablets recording incoming and outgoing amounts of flour and grain. As Irving Finkel from the British Museum points out, quote, It's very probable that it was a kind of administrative responsibility which produced the first stumbling attempt at writing, and then eventually a proper fluent script, end quote. It was ruling classes with taxes and the distribution of goods that seemed to have precipitated the need for some kind of written notes, as opposed to hunter-gatherer societies who mostly sustained themselves collectively and bartered for goods with others. What Finkel calls the giant leap of mankind was when humans went from using pictures as literal pictures and started using them as sounds, that is, expressing words or concepts that don't have a tangible picture that can go with them, and so substituting in words that sound the same. For example, a drawing of a bumblebee and a drawing of a leaf can be combined to illustrate the word belief. Every ancient writing system around the world appears to have found the same solution for written expression, but while some stuck with this method and innovated on it with classifiers like modern-day Chinese, others eventually developed alphabets, beginning in the Sinai Peninsula about 4,000 years ago and then spreading to many parts of Europe, Asia, and the rest of Africa. But how do our brains make sense of the letters and characters? Neurologist Thomas Hope, a senior research associate at University College London, describes the process as, quote, a bunch of potentially redundant streams. And quoting further from Nautilus, For reading, there are two large tributaries broadly correlated with sound and vision. The third major area working on the task is the Broca's area, in charge of executive function, which acts as the conductor, orchestrating all the inputs. Beginning readers sound down each letter to get the meaning. 
Reading is not just to communicate meaning, but also to communicate generally, Hope says. And the most common way that we communicate is by speaking. So when you read a word, some part of your brain is sounding out what that word would sound like if you were saying it or if someone was saying it to you. And that act of speech communication is the same across cultures, whatever the written form of the language, so most readers will be hearing as they read. But sound isn't all, Hope says. You can't learn to read just by learning the letters. You have to learn to understand and recognize the words, too. Readers in an alphabetic system have to learn the equivalent of characters. Learning the shape of a word is basically the same job as extracting the meaning from a pictographic character. But once we get more fluent at reading, we tend to use a different tributary more. Another way that most skilled readers prefer is to recognize the whole word as a single entity and connect it directly to meaning, Hope says, end quote. Tate of University College London has conducted a number of experiments using brain scans of people reading, specifically comparing people reading in Chinese characters and in a phonetic system like English. So a script where you comprehend meaning by recognizing a character versus by using the sound of letters. And what she found is that the parts of the brain we use for those tasks, the tributaries as Hope described them, are slightly different, but not so much because of the type of script we're trying to read, rather because how we're taught to read them. And Twomi and her team discovered this by studying dyslexic readers, whose brains lit up in all tributaries no matter which form of script they were reading, because their brains were trying to account for what they were having trouble comprehending. The researchers wonder whether further findings in this direction could eventually influence how we teach reading. Might we find better ways to help out dyslexic people or later learners? What depths of creativity might we tap if we teach phonetic readers to learn word shapes and pictograph readers to chant words aloud? Or likely some much more complex solution. Wilson, the article's author, even goes so far as to postulate how kids raised on emojis might be activating different parts of their brain in their meaning-making of language and wonders how that could change the way we communicate going forward. It sounds fairly far-fetched, but she reminds us that humans have really only been reading for 5,000 years, and that's, quote, a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms, end quote. So who knows what could still change? The European Space Agency's Gaia spacecraft is the gift that keeps on giving. The telescope's latest achievement is measuring the parallaxes of over a billion stars. Parallaxes are tiny shifts in stars' apparent positions, which reveal their distances. And the ones measured by Gaia are, quoting astrophysicist Joe Bovey, by far the most accurate and precise distance determinations ever. End quote. Now, apart from just being cool, why is this important? Because included in the 1.3 billion star measurements are some special stars whose distances can be used to calculate farther cosmological distances, meaning some big questions have been thrust into new, more accurate light, namely the Hubble tension. The Hubble tension refers to the expansion of the universe and the statistically significant discrepancies between calculations and measurements. Quoting Quanta magazine, 
The cosmos's known ingredients and governing equations predict that it should currently be expanding at a rate of 67 kilometers per second per megaparsec, meaning that we should see galaxies flying away from us 67 kilometers per second faster for each additional megaparsec of distance. Yet actual measurements consistently overshoot the mark. Galaxies are receding too quickly. The discrepancy thrillingly suggests that some unknown quickening agent may be afoot in the cosmos. End quote. So what's going on? Well, to make headway on figuring it out, scientists have needed to reduce potential sources of error in the measurements, especially when it comes to the distance to nearby stars. And thanks to Gaia, we now have a ton of new, exceptionally more accurate measurements to work with, and astrophysicists are stoked. Papers are being churned out with new calculations at top speed. Now, how did these calculations work? Quoting again, In broad strokes, the way to gauge cosmic expansion is to figure out how far away distant galaxies are and how fast they're receding from us. The speed measurements are straightforward. Distances are hard. The most precise measurements rely on intricate cosmic distance ladders. The first rung consists of standard candle stars in and around our own galaxy that have well-defined luminosities and which are close enough to exhibit parallax, the only sure way to tell how far away things are without traveling there. Astronomers then compare the brightness of these standard candles with that of fainter ones in nearby galaxies to deduce their distances. That's the second rung of the ladder. Knowing the distances of these galaxies, which are chosen because they contain rare, bright, stellar explosions called Type 1a supernovas, allows cosmologists to gauge the relative distances of farther away galaxies that contain fainter Type 1a supernovas. Now, the ratio of these faraway galaxies' speeds to their distances gives the cosmic expansion rate. End quote. So the precision of the parallax being that first rung of the ladder is of utmost importance and can change the whole calculation if it's off. And that is why astronomers are so stoked about this new data. It really could hold the key to understanding the question of the Hubble tension that they've been trying to crack for years. Ending today with a few monolith developments. Yes, the monoliths are still popping up everywhere. No, no one thinks any of them have anything to do with the original. It's basically just become the latest trend to construct a monolith wherever you feel like at this point. But two recent ones caught my eye. First, over the weekend, Jason shared on Kaki.org that there's one in driving distance of his home in Vermont. It's 1,800 feet up a mountain in Pittsfield overlooking Riverside Farm. This monolith is 8 feet tall and definitely meant to look like the original, although as intrepid reporter Catherine Huntley from WCAX pointed out when she went to investigate, there are seams evident on each side, something lacking in the original monolith which added to part of its otherworldly mystique. Riverside Farm General Manager Peter Borden said, quote, I don't know who put it up there. There are no footprints. There are no burn marks from the alien ship. There's just no way to know how it got there. He also added that his initial reaction was, Come on, who went to this much trouble? End quote. Adding to the mystery, the monolith disappeared within a couple days of its appearance, but was then returned on Christmas Eve. 
So who knows what's going on there or how long it will last, but if you're in the vicinity, the uphill hike to see it is apparently a nice and safe, if fairly challenging one, whether or not you find a monolith at the end. But as far as ephemeral Christmassy monoliths go, Bonnie Nortz on Twitter alerted me to a gingerbread monolith that was briefly erected in San Francisco. This one was almost seven feet tall, placed on top of a hill in Corona Heights Park, and yes, made entirely of gingerbread. Eight squares were stacked on top of each other on each of the three sides, held together by some very strong icing, and decorated with a few gumdrops to resemble the screws. Phil Ginsberg, the head of San Francisco's Recreation and Parks Department, responded in good spirits to the unauthorized installation, telling the local news that the chosen location, quote, looks like a great spot to get baked, and that the city won't be removing the monolith, quote, until the cookie crumbles. But with a bit of light rain and some passersby taking bites out of the structure, the monolith had fallen by Saturday and is sadly no longer with us. I am not sure how long this trend can keep up, but I also don't think I'm quite sick of it yet. Like, when it's done in fairly good taste and brings a bit of joy to locals or a few more safely distanced visitors to trails and towns that might need a tourism boost, why not? That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I've got to go figure out what to do with all this gingerbread I found on a hill in San Francisco. I hope you are all having a great day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.